Speaking of BC's new vaccine card, the new vaccine passport set to kick in next month. Proof of vaccination to be re- required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, sporting event. Uh, the list becoming familiar. What about privacy concerns around this new vaccine passport system that is being raised by some people? I've got the Information and Privacy Commissioner for BC standing by, Michael McAvoy. Uh, pl- but as we before we talk to him, though, have a listen to this report from Global News reporter Kylie Stanton. Driving by or dining in for customers here at the Sunnyside Cafe, showing support is about showing up. They should not have to ask people people for private information. We shouldn't uh, be discriminating against people's private uh, medical decisions. The Esquimalt eatery, just one of thousands of BC businesses, now pushing back against the province's vaccine card, deciding it will not be asking customers to prove their vaccination status when it comes into effect on September 13th. If they want to provide it, that's fine. But for those who don't want to provide the information, vaxxed or not vaxxed, that, we feel, is their personal choice. Okay, so you heard a lot of concerns raised there by some people around privacy with this new BC vaccine card. Let's discuss that now with my guest, Michael McAvoy. He is British Columbia's Independent Information and Privacy Commissioner. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Commissioner, thank you for coming on today. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Yeah, appreciate it a lot. Um, first of all, let me ask you real quickly, can you explain to the listeners briefly what your authority is here around when it comes to protection of privacy in British Columbia? What are your powers and your mandate and your authority here? Well, we have um, uh, uh, ability to adjudicate over uh, protection of people's information, both in the public sector and the private sector. And so there are rules in place. Uh, governments can't just collect whatever they want about you. Private organizations can't uh, collect whatever they want about you. That's done according to to a certain set of rules, and it's our job to ensure that those rules are upheld. I would put it in some context. Uh, people sometimes uh, forget our personal information protection laws, uh, whether they're in the public sector or the private sector, are designed to protect people's personal information, but they're also designed to allow for the sharing, some sharing of personal information, uh, particularly at a time where people's personal and public health is at issue. And so right. it's those two things that I think um, are important for people to remember and that they can and they, they should uh, work together. And I think that's part of my responsibility, part of the responsibility of our office uh, to engage with the public, to engage with public and private sector, uh, to ensure that those two things work together. When it comes to the BC vaccine card, and we've got a very short runway to get this thing up and running, it's supposed to kick in next month. What is your role here? Are you helping the government with this? Is the government consulting with you on it? Or the the, the health health officer? Maybe the health officer is more appropriate. Yeah, the health officer has been consulting with us uh, throughout, uh, as has elements of government that are involved in this. Our job is to give uh, independent oversight and commentary on this issue. And so, uh, you know, we have a number of issues that we wanted to make sure and make sure that government is very cognizant of as they move forward. This is obviously a significant action when you're putting together a vaccine uh, certification system. So, you know, there's a number of elements that we've made clear to government we think are really important. Uh, First of all, that that, that any vaccination certificate have very limited information uh, on it about you. Um, basically, your, your essentially your name and your vaccine uh, status, uh, and, and to 
think about how that's going to be collected at the other end. So when Mike Smith goes to the gym or you go to uh, an establishment of one kind or another, uh, there's got to be some way, obviously, for that institution to collect that information. But what we don't want right. to doing is storing that information and being able to track how often and what you do over the course of time so that it, that it only allow, if the QR code, for example, that's going to be used, uh, that, it, that institutions only be, it's a read-only function. They don't store and collect it because we don't want uh, tracking. We also right. want to make sure that the information that is uh, garnered is at, at the government level and uh, is, is properly secured and protected. You may have heard the story uh, recently in Quebec about how uh, it's alleged some of the QR information and information about people's status has been hacked. And so we've made some uh, recommendations to government about how we think they can better protect people's information as they put the system together. And I have to say, there is uh, nothing that I've heard from government, either from Dr. Henry or from uh, uh, the government people that we have uh, consulted with, uh, indicates anything other than they are absolutely intent on abiding by these kinds of principles because they understand what's at stake here. It's the public health, but it's also the public trust in how people's information is being handled. I think you list some crucial points on this issue. Let me ask you a little bit about some of those. You mentioned the the, yeah. Q, the QR uh, code uh, potentially on a phone, which is, as I understand it, more like kind of like a, a barcode almost on your phone that could potentially be scanned as you enter a restaurant or whatever, right? So you're saying right. that, that that should be read. What does that mean, read only? That read means only. that, yeah. Right, so an example would be you go to uh, the gym, the person at the other end will have some kind of software which allows them to um, uh, see that this is Mike Smith and that you're, uh, you've been vaccinated. Uh, they will then probably ask you, because they want to make sure that it's not some fraudulent thing, that, that you are Mike Smith, probably show a driver's license. That needn't and shouldn't be recorded just to show that that's you. That should be the end of it. So they read that device only. It's dispensed with after that. They're not collecting it at the other end. And right. on you go. And on you go to the gym. Right. So there would be no record uh, available to show that you've been there. Like you're saying, you don't want people tracked. You don't want to be able to someone else to use this and say, figure out where people have gone or where they've been. That so the information would not be stored. That's exactly right. right. And certainly, yeah. we've heard a lot of concerns about that. And and uh, government, I think, understands that they need to address that. Right. Right. I know. I think that's crucial. And when it comes to the. Uh, proper storage and security of information. And you mentioned that there, there was some information hacked in the province of Quebec. And we, we hear lots more about these type of uh, uh, high-tech hackings going on and, and security breach, and information security breaches. What would be your recommendations to government on that to prevent that from happening here? Well, obviously, we don't want to uh, be talking about things that the bad guys would be very interested in uh, right, uh, right. knowing about. But we have people that, that are uh, technically proficient at our end, as government have, of course, has a very sophisticated team in place. And so uh, the kinds of issues that have arisen in other jurisdictions, they are very uh, aware of and, uh, and, and taking measures to ensure that that kind of thing uh, is not going to happen. Of course, there's no guarantee uh, there's always people trying to hack whatever uh, computer systems are in place, but you want to make it as foolproof as you possibly can. And uh, and government is certainly, I know, uh, committed as they should be, but it's our job to, uh, I think, be vigilant and to, to audit that and to make sure that's actually happening. Right. Speaking to Michael McAvoy, British Columbia's independent privacy commissioner, and you mentioned that you've been, you're working with the, Dr. Bonnie Henry, you're working with government on this. 
are, are you satisfied that uh, you're being adequately uh, consulted and, and involved here and that this is and that this is the right way forward that we're in a, a public health emergency and that this is the right thing to do yeah well you know as commissioners look it's not just here in british columbia but commissioners across the country have recognized right from the outset that a vaccination certificate could bring uh, great benefits to society to allow us to operate more freely and to have more uh, accelerated economic recovery and so forth but it has to be and it has to be done the right way and that's i think the critical piece again i believe government uh, understands they've been very open to some of the recommendations that we have made but look uh, this is an ongoing story uh, the evidence is changing about the virus uh, as we move through time and so that means that our office will have to continue to uh, maintain its responsibility to oversee uh, to give uh, advice to government and where we think it's uh, important and necessary to right. make public statements if we don't think they're going down that uh, path properly I'm glad you're involved with it at this level, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk about it today. Thank you for coming on. You're very welcome, Michael. All right, welcome back. As we continue talking about BC's new vaccine passport set to kick in next month, the BC vaccine card will be rolled out, proof of vaccination required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, and other places. Now, what if there is a problem here? What if you've got a situation where someone uh, doesn't want to show proof of vaccination to get into a place? There's a dispute. There's a problem. We've seen this happen before. Who is going to enforce this? What if you have a business that doesn't want to play along and they say they won't enforce the law here with this proof of vaccination passport system? Who's going to enforce that? Premier John Horgan was asked this question the other day. He said, what if there's a problem? Who will enforce it? What should you do? What should a business do? Listen closely to what he had to say here. Here's John Horgan the other day. With respect to enforcement, it's not unlike uh, with respect to uh, nightclubs or the hospitality sector, if they have difficulty with patrons, uh, they call law enforcement. And that's uh, what I would expect would happen with respect to the vaccination card as well. Okay, call the cops. Call the police. That's what business should do if there's a problem. You call the police. Okay, well, have the police been informed about this? That this will be their responsibility to enforce this? Let's discuss now with my guest, Tom Stamatakis president of the canadian police association i'm pleased to welcome him back to the show thanks a lot for coming on uh you're welcome mike okay what did you think of that comment there from john horgan that if there's a problem in a business they should call the police here well i would cut the premier a bit of slack he was at a press conference and and made a comment off the cuff but it does raise the broader issue though of you know public policy decisions that are made or or government officials or elected officials making public policy decisions where there's an automatic default to the police and uh, in terms of some aspect of whatever the policy decision is, which is effectively, a, you know, a downloading and creates all kinds of other issues, including, you know, raising expectations that the police may not be able to meet because of resource issues. Uh, it, you know, these decisions are often politicized because, you know, an opposing party or, or uh, elected official will, see it as an opportunity to criticize the government. And it just puts the police in this difficult position, particularly during COVID, which we've seen over and over again, where we end up being in the middle between these public policy decisions and the public. And it just creates issues. And it's particularly frustrating when those same public officials or elected officials then criticize the police for doing exactly what 
um, they expected them to do in the first place or or because the police are responding to a situation that they created. So there, there's lots of implications, and I think we need to have a more thoughtful approach. Was there consultation with your people on this? Like, did the government come to you and or, or other police associations, police departments, and say, look, we're bringing in this system, and we're going to need you guys to have her have her back here if there are problems with it we we maybe you know we're going to instruct people to phone police if there are problems did they let you know that and consult with you on it um as far as i'm aware there wasn't any consultation but you know quite frankly throughout this whole pandemic um you know many decisions that have been made with respect to public health orders and then ultimate enforcement have you know, involve consultation with the police after the fact as opposed to in a proactive way. And realistically, even if there was consultation, you know, from from a and pragmatically from a resource perspective, the idea that the police are somehow going to be available to deal with every single conflict that comes up, I, I think, is is unrealistic. You know, again, needs to be a more thoughtful approach where, um, you know, the government and the public health officer uh, liaise with the business community, come up with existing resources when it comes to enforcing health orders, um, find ways of, um, in a thoughtful way of responding to these issues where, you know, the first resort or the first option isn't always to call the police. Perhaps that's something that happens as a last resort when all other attempts to educate, to enforce in different ways have failed, and then, of course, the police will ultimately have to be involved. But it shouldn't be a, a first response. Right. There's, uh, Of course, it's not unusual for the police to be called to a bar or a nightclub if there's a dispute or a confrontation. Would this... Well, you I, know, I, frankly, frankly, Mike, it, it is unusual. The, the okay. fact is, the, the, the example that the Premier gave is, 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 is not the right kind of example, because in most cases... Um, Issues that involve customers at a licensed premise or whatever are often resolved by the staff at the licensed premise in the first instance. And the police yeah. really only attend, again, as a last resort when, when, when all attempts to, to deal with things have, have failed. What, how thinly stretched are police resources right now? I mean, we've just gone through a period of uh, deadly heat waves. We've got COVID-19 uh, we've got the, the opioid overdose epidemic. Uh, I mean, for first respond, all first responders are feeling pressure. How thinly stretched are the resources like right now with the, with this new added, potentially added new responsibility here? Well, j- just about every police service is, are facing challenges. They're facing challenges because of the pandemic, because of the things that you mentioned. They're facing challenges because they're dealing with demographic issues that see a lot of people retiring. Uh, they're dealing with funding challenges in Vancouver in particular. There's been this whole discussion about reducing the funding of the police service, despite yeah. the fact that they're operating at 2009 staffing levels, you know, in the midst of a lot of growth in the city and development. So, there are significant challenges and, and, and continuing to default to just expecting the police to, to do more and more and more, you know, there's an implication of that there, you know, you can't respond to things. You, your response times become longer and longer. So when there is a, a, a crisis, you know, it becomes more of a challenge to get there in a reasonable amount of time. So again, there needs to be a more thoughtful approach and there needs to be a, an understanding or a realization that anytime you, then add another responsibility onto the police. There needs to be some reflection on, okay, well, what's the resource capacity and what do we need to do to fund or add funding? And the other, there, there are broader implications. I mean, 
you know, 70% of the policing in, in most provinces is funded by municipalities, yet it's the province that a lot, often make decisions that drive workload and capacity. So what we ought to be talking about is the funding formula and how uh, policing is funded, because often, you know, it, it, municipalities were com- would complain that the cost is not sustainable, and, and while they're, they're paying for the most of the cost, they have the least control over how decisions are made that drive those workload issues. Mm. Tom Stamatakis, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. I appreciate it. The Tom Stamatakis Canadian Police Associations checking with Rob Ferrer now, director of the National Police Federation, uh, the Pacific Division there. They represent the RCMP officers in Canada. Rob, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Tom's organization represents municipal police officers. You guys are with the RCMP. Do you have similar concerns about this new vaccine passport and who will enforce it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I reflect a lot of what, what Tom said is there as well. Um, you know, the premier made his made his comments. And again, we agree, cut him a little bit of slack. But this seems somewhat reminiscent of when the comments were made about doing an audit on the traveling public a number of months ago. Um, and we had some concerns that we, you know, these comments get made and expectations get raised, and then we have to sort of work, work to roll that back a little bit. Um, you know, the police can't be the, the first call, and, and I don't expect they will be, you know, at a restaurant or whatever. It won't be the first call, but we have to make sure that the expectations aren't that, okay, well, there's a dispute, let's immediately call the police. Um, this summer, you mentioned with, with wildfires and, and Ferry Creek, and we've had 650 deployments, individual members. More than that, some have gone multiple times to, to the wildfires and then hundreds to Ferry Creek. And, you know, those members, I think it's important to note that, you know, those aren't, those are members from the communities. So, you know, they're, so each detachment around the province, they're sending resources from their detachments to those spots to, to do what's necessary, you know, to assess right. with road closures, evacuations, making sure evacuees can find family members, crime prevention. There's a lot of things that get involved with that. Um, and that reflects on the community. And then when you add, you know, an additional task with no additional resources, somewhere it has to give. Okay, let me play this here for you, Rob. Get your thoughts on this. This is Health Minister Adrian Dix. He was on the Jazz Joe Hall show last week, and uh, Jazz asked the minister, uh, will restaurants have help if they're dealing with angry customers when this vaccine passport kicks in. Have a listen to what the minister says here, and I'll get your thoughts. These are and will be provincial health orders, meaning that ultimately they can get some of that support from bylaw enforcement and environmental health officers and others. Okay, so we said that these are provincial health orders, and there will be provincial bylaw and uh, officers to help enforce this. Your yeah, thoughts? I, I mean, think... your thoughts on that? Well, that, that sounds like a, a, a prudent approach. <laughs> You know, the police, and this is, you know, a much broader discussion about police's role in enforcing, you know, public health orders, um, and, and is that what society wants? But, you know, and, and I think that sounds like a, a prudent approach. Um, ultimately, if things, I'll say, go sideways at a, at a scene, the conflict is raised to a point where the police are necessary to go to that, then, of course, our members will respond professionally as they do to any dispute that requires policing. Sure. Uh, yeah. But I think a nuanced approach to this is is certainly the way that we would like to see this go. Would you Would you call for more resources? I mean, what would you like to have? What would you like to see done here? Would you like to see the 
the public health officer or the minister sit down with police and say, okay, this system is coming in. Here's how it's going to work. It may result in, in increased calls to, to police. What do you guys yeah, well, need? Uh, absolutely. Um, well, there's two, I guess, a, a few pieces to that. One, um, I think September 2nd, so just a few days from now, our President Brian Silva is going to be meeting with, uh, with a government, provincial government committee on resource issues. And that was before these, these comments, of course, this has been set up for a number of months, uh, to deal with just resources. And, and I'll, I'll just give a brief comment on the federal uh, landscape. Of course, part of our funding comes federally and, and all of our training comes out of depot for RCMP. And with COVID and restrictions on gatherings, that included training. So last year, we were only able to graduate 380 RCMP officers. Um, and normally, we would want at least 1,200 a year. Uh, so, you know, you can imagine that that takes a long time to make up. So we're asking for, you know, about $160 million federally to try and get those resources. And again, I don't want to, this isn't about individual officers as much as it is about just public safety. And, and that was before asking for additional tasks. Okay. Rob, thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the latest on the federal election campaign trail. We're less than two weeks after Justin Trudeau called that early snap election here, despite the uh, pandemic surging. Look like uh, Trudeau might have a slam dunk here, but the polls appear to be turning around a little bit. Let's check in with Aaron O'Toole now, leader of the federal conservative party. I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hi, thanks for coming on. It's good to be back with you, Mike. Okay, I appreciate your time here. What is your read of what's happening right now? Are you seeing like a change in mood or a change in direction? Like, how do you analyze it? Um, two things. People really like the plan we put out. So I'm glad we put our cannabis recovery plan out on literally the first full day of the campaign. We've been working for months to make sure we had a plan on, on getting things back on track and in the country back to work and, and tackling issues like mental health and other things. So, and so people heard it and it's resonating. And the other thing, I do see a fatigue with, with Justin Trudeau out there, you know, and, and in all parts of the country, people are kind of tired of, of someone that says one thing, does the other, uh, always puts himself first and even calling the election, as you said, at a time when the fourth wave was here, the fires in BC, the chaos in Afghanistan, people are upset about that as well. So they're open to a message of change. And what I'm talking about is our Canada's recovery plan and our positive campaign to get the country back on track. And, and we're getting some traction, but we got a lot of work to do, Mike. Okay, it's getting nasty out there. We see some of these really hostile, angry crowds that are following Trudeau around, particularly at his campaign stops. We actually saw one of his events canceled and postponed because of a security threat. And I want to play a comment from for you from Justin Trudeau on these uh, the crowds that he's seeing. He kind of turns it back on you, and then I'll get your thoughts on it. Here is Justin Trudeau. We know they don't listen to me. Perhaps they will listen to Aaron O'Toole if he tells them that climate change is real. If he tells them that vaccines are safe and secure and demonstrates with real leadership how we're going to move forward as a country to be safer, to be better and more prosperous. That's the choice that Aaron O'Toole needs to make right now. Okay, that's uh, Justin Trudeau. You could hear the crowd of protesters in the background turning it around on you, telling, I guess, challenging you to tell these protesters to stand down. How do you respond to what he said there? Well, first, I condemn protesters and people harassing candidates. Some of our candidates, like Michelle Rempel, has featured the same thing. That's unacceptable. We're a democracy. 
you can have a debate, but you can be respectful and informed. And I have zero tolerance for, for any of that stuff. And it's unfair if it happens to Mr. Trudeau, uh, some of my MPs, anyone. The second thing I'd say to him, Mike, and you know this because I've been talking about our our price on carbon and climate change that I put out in April. I've been talking about vaccines. I publicized my wife and I getting our vaccinations because vaccines are so important. So Mr. Trudeau, who's called an election with no plan, no reason for this election, um, cannot lecture us when we've put out a plan for tackling all the issues facing our country, particularly the economic and the opioid crisis and some of the mental health crisis, but I have a very comprehensive climate change plan as well. And so we've got the plan out there and we didn't know when the election would be. He called the election and has no plan that he's running on other than division and misleading tweets about me and and American style attacks. So um, I'm going to continue my positive mission, Mike, and telling more people about Canada's recovery plan. Okay, speaking to Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, speaking of your climate change plan and promises, uh, Trudeau continues to say that some of your candidates are trafficking in climate change conspiracy theories, and he has referenced specifically uh, Conservative candidate Cheryl Gallant, who's running in the Ottawa Valley, who had a video up talking about the, the Canadians should prepare for a a climate lockdown that maybe the liberal government would bring in some sort of lockdown measures to control climate change. Global News, Mr. O'Toole, reporting here that the Conservative Party has has told your candidate, Cheryl Gallant, to take those videos down and to stop saying these things. Is that right? Is that correct? Well, we're running on Canada's recovery plan, nothing else. And so tweets and, and messages from five months or five years ago uh, is not what we're running on. We're running on the five pillars of Canada's recovery plan. And that's not just me as leader. Every single candidate we have in all parts of the country are committed to that, uh, as is Ms. Gallant. And so we're going to deliver on what we're committing to people. And that, that will be the real change, because whether it's the deficits, whether it's safe drinking water, whether it's uh, any promise Mr. Trudeau makes, he rarely ever delivers. And I think that's why there's cynicism, and that's why you do see a desire for change out there, Mike. And we're going to be steadfast in our commitment to the five pillars we're running on. Let me ask you about a big story that we're covering here on our show today and is top of mind here in British Columbia, and that is the vaccine passport that was announced last week by the B.C. government. Proof of vaccination will be required to enter a restaurant, pub, movie theater, sporting event, and a list of other areas do you support this in principle? Like, do you support provinces that are bringing in mandatory uh, vaccine passports or a vaccine card system, as we call it here? Well, as I said, I want oh. people to get vaccinated. It's the best way to fight COVID-19. And I'm going to respect anything the provinces do to try and balance off keeping the economy open, keeping those restaurants open uh, and keeping people safe and people restaurants or cinemas, these sorts of things. Provinces are doing proof of vaccinations, QR codes, uh, passports. We will partner and respect whatever decisions the provinces make. And my commitment with the fourth pillar of our plan is to make sure we're not four months late delivering vaccines, make sure we have national leadership on PPE, on, on, on critical items we need to fight the pandemic. And I want to partner with the provinces. Mr. Trudeau has been trying to pick fights with premiers in the midst of an election. I want to partner with each of them, including Premier Horgan, 
to make sure that we're never again unprepared. How do you see a, a federal conservative government leading Canada out of this crisis with the Delta variant numbers surging here right now? I mean, we saw Justin Trudeau the other day say that he would mandate mandatory vaccination for all federal employees. And I believe you disagree with them on that. Could you expand on that? Like, why why would you oppose mandatory vaccination for federal employees? Well, this is another area where he was caught misleading people, Mike, because the the chief human rights person for our human resources person for the federal government put out a statement that was a basically similar to what I was saying, which is let's get as many people vaccinated as possible, encourage that, educate, get it out there. And if there are a small number not vaccinated, use daily rapid testing, use masking and other distance distancing issues to make sure that people are safe. We've got to use all the tools. And I, I prefer to, to educate, not to coerce people. I respect people making their, their personal health decisions, but we can still get as many people as possible edu- uh, vaccinated. And this is what his own human uh, resources person basically said. And it's similar to what the unions have said. So Mr. Trudeau has been trying to politicize vaccination at a time we actually need to educate and get hesitancy down. I think Canadians have done a great job getting out there, getting the jabs in the arms. We should work with folks to address hesitancy, not use vaccines, not use this pandemic to divide people. And that's what Mr. Trudeau tried to do out of the gate with this election. Last question for you. I know you're busy. You got to get back on the campaign trail. You announced earlier today that you would ban puppy mills in Canada. I can't believe you're sinking this low. You're actually going to, a politician promising to protect puppies. What, how would, (laughs) how would this work? Well, Mike, I made that uh, controversial declaration today that I'm a dog person, not a cat person. No, the the increase in, in bad breeding practices, puppy mills has increased because pet ownership has increased in the pandemic. People want that companionship, that family member, So we're going to go after that. We're also going to ban cosmetic testing in animals and work with shelters to make sure that people fleeing violence, uh, a woman fleeing a violent partner can be able to take their their pet with them for for comfort and support. So we've been working with the humane societies and other groups to make sure how can we also put animal welfare in our recovery plan. It was a fun announcement today today, uh, with my kids and with our dog Wexford. Thank you for coming on. Thank you, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show, and thanks a lot for all your calls there on our Harbor Air Tour of the Ledge contest. Our qualifier today is Heather from Abbotsford. Congratulations, Heather. She was the lucky qualifier today, and her name goes into the draw for the uh, special trip for four to Victoria and a behind-the-scenes tour of the legislature with myself and Keith Baldry. We'll do that on Friday. Uh, but even if Heather doesn't win that, she has won, at the very least, a trip for two with Harbor Air. And we, uh, my great thanks to Harbor Air once again for sponsoring the contest, and we'll play again tomorrow. All right, the legal battle now to save a dog on death row. The dog's name is Bronx. He's a five-year-old Rottweiler mixed-breed dog currently in custody of animal control in Victoria. The city now moving forward with an application to have Bronx humanely euthanized after the dog bit two people. His owner, though, is fighting to save him. His owner's name is Ken Griffiths. He's a specialist in dog behavior on Vancouver Island. 
He's fighting to save his dog from a death sentence, and I'm pleased to welcome him to the show. Ken, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thank you very much for your interest in the story with the Bronx. Yeah, you bet. Now, let's talk about, uh, you're not the original owner of Bronx, right? Who is the original owner? Uh, that's correct. There's a gentleman named Rick Bonera, Bonora. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, how did you come to be the owner of Bronx the dog? Um, the city had, or the city was willing to try and find a new owner for dog who would be able to give a suitable home and offer the proper training and everything to, to make sure that the situations that happened never happened again. Um, and, and that's mainly because the trainer that they hired to do an assessment of the dog, she determined that it, you know, the dog didn't need to be euthanized. And it, mm. uh, it, it showed nervousness and, and fear in, in her assessment. So it wasn't showing any aggression. So they thought if they found the right home. But uh, they had somebody who was willing to do that, but uh, turned out that, that it, for whatever reason, that didn't work out. So there was a lady <laughs> helping uh, Mr. Bonora, and she heard or found out about me, heard about me, and contacted me because uh, I'm a dog behaviorist. Right. If I could, so you... if I could help in some way. Because one of the things I do, like right now I have... 29 dogs on my property wow um okay let's let's talk about let's talk about bronx here uh ken and how he got into trouble so yep now this this dog he's a rottweiler mix right like what other breeds are in there he's a big dog right dogo argentino yeah so he kind of looks like a mix between like a boxer rottweiler you know he's, he's a nice looking boy Okay, and, and he uh, yeah. he attacked another dog and killed another dog, right? Yes. Uh, it wasn't actually an attack. Well, people would see it, I guess, as an attack, but he didn't go up and maul the dog. It was, he just ran towards the dog, and it was one bite. It was a territorial just territorial action, but it's a very small dog, and he's a big dog, and it just it was just an unfortunate situation. And But he didn't. it wasn't the intention of him to kill. Like He, he didn't attack and maul it kind of a thing. And then there was another situation where the, there was an owner with their dog, and he did a, another territorial bite toward that dog, and the dog just suffered a single puncture, and the person got bit um, in, in trying to break that up. But it okay. Was a single, single bite again. Okay, so the dog is now, like, the, the city of Victoria wants to, what, euthanize the dog. Is that correct? Well, once, the, like I said, the city was willing to have somebody take over ownership of the dog, but once they found out that person was me, then they changed their mind. Oh. Why is that? Uh, you'd have to ask them that question. Okay, so, what, do you, uh, what do you want to do? You've been fighting this in court, and you've, as I understand it, you have now won the right to visit Bronx in custody and, and assess the dog. Is that right? Right. Well, we haven't been to trial yet. Okay. Uh, the defense has a right to have their own... Uh, dog trainer behaviorists assess the dog and compare assessments to what the city's trainer's assessment was. And me as a dog behaviorist, this is what I do. I worked on another case, a case about a dog named Macy in the Nimo back in 2019. I did the assessment there. But uh, they were so on July 15th, we were in court for a hearing to um, 
just a second. Sorry, come. So, it sounds like uh, your some okay. of your other dogs are acting up there, Ken. Well, it's just my dogs are here playing. My three my three main dogs are just kind of out here with me. Jake, Jack, Melina. They're just playing. So I just put them back in the house there. Okay, uh, what would you? That, what uh, do you? What do you want to do with Bronx? You want to go in and, and assess Bronx. You believe Bronx can be saved, right? You you don't believe the dog should be put down. No, he's not a dangerous dog at all. From the video that I saw and the assessment of the other trainer, and and also from the information I got about the incident that happened, he, he's not an aggressive dog. He's just a a, a a young dog that doesn't feel completely safe, just being territorial. And that's why he's just doing a single bite. Like He's not going up and attacking mauling. He's just a single bite. So um, on July 15th, the judge, after hearing about me and my abilities, this is what I do. I take in dogs that are going to be euthanized because of aggression. I rehabilitate them, and I find them new homes. Um, I have 17 dogs here right now that were all going to be euthanized. Every every dog here uh, was considered aggressive, deemed aggressive. Uh, I've adopted out 10 dogs in the last three months. I have eight dogs here right now that are ready to be adopted out. Uh, this is what I do. So when the judge heard that, she, she asked him, just asked him to, to just give, well, just let Mr. Griffith have the dog. And All they right. said, no, uh, we're going to move forward with the destruction order. She asked why, and they weren't able to really give a good uh, explanation as far as I'm concerned. And then she asked them to allow me to do an assessment of the dog, and they also refused that. Um, which the judge again asked why, and they weren't able to really give a good reason for that. So the hearing that we had last week was for the judge to make a decision to allow me to do this um, this assessment. Okay, and you won, so, right? You you now uh, have you yeah, won that in application. Free, 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 well, the important thing is I have free and unfettered access to the dog to do the assessment because. Um, Ian Fraser is the guy that owns the uh, Victoria Animal Control. Yeah. And so the stipulations that they had was that I could see the dog once. I couldn't have a witness or anybody with me. Um, At first, they wouldn't allow me to videotape the session, but then they said that I could videotape it, but Ian Fraser himself would have to hold the camera. And I would have to wear a mask when I meet the dog, which I never do because the dog needs to see your face especially a dog in this situation. They need to see your face, your facial expressions. is all very important to a dog. So I, I, of course, didn't agree to any of that, and that's why we went to court for the judge to make a decision. So the judge basically quashed all that. Uh, I have full access to the dog to, to do the assessment. I have another dog behaviorist, Gary Gibson, who's going to be joining me as a witness, and he's going to be the one doing the videotaping. And uh, Ian Fraser was asked to sit in a chair in the alcove to watch and to in no way interfere with the assessment. Right, and when will that... Very happy. When will that happen, Ken? That's this, uh, this coming Thursday. Okay, so this coming Thursday, you will be allowed in to see Bronx the dog and, and, and conduct this assessment. What kind of an assessment are you going to do when you go in there? Well, the first thing I do is I meet the dog, and as I do with every client and every home, is, is I become the dog's mother. It's not about being the alpha male, uh, the leader, the boss. The, the relationship between dogs is not based on dominance like everybody thinks it is. It's based on trust and respect. The human relationship is based on dominance, and it's always negative, and it's always used for power and control. And we just project that onto dogs and think that they think and act in the same way for the same reasons, and they don't. So, for example, when people see a dog fight, it's not a dog fight. 
that they're tearing each other to pieces at the dogfight. But most of what people see, it's a dominance challenge. And there's a difference between a challenge and a fight. Two guys going at it outside of a bar Friday night, that's a fight. And it's the intent to do harm to the other. When two dogs are in a dominance challenge, there's no intent to do harm to the other. And that's why in most cases, when even I've had pit bulls got latched a hold of each other, and you get, a, get them apart, there's not a scratch on either dog, hmm. right? A lot of times you might see a superficial scratch or a puncture, and that's because there was no intent to do harm. Those teeth, you know, you know will do a lot of damage very quickly if that's the intent. So because the relationship is built on trust and respect, the leadership, if you will, of the pack, it's, it's made up of the individuals who are born with the instinctual abilities uh, to lead and protect the rest. Strength, courage, confidence. There's, there's some people that run towards the firefight. There's some people that run away from it. The people that run away from it aren't cowards. That's just not, that's just not their position within our society, right? Hmm. The people that run towards it, they're the ones that are instinctually born to protect the pack. There's okay. no thought of themselves, right? So it's about being the mother because that, that's the role of the mother. Okay. So Kent, then, Kent, yeah. yeah. Ken, let me just interrupt you and say that I find the case fascinating and I'd be very interested in continuing to follow it. And after you have had the assessment of Bronx the dog on Thursday, I would love to have you back on to to discuss with you how it went and to find out if you're able to save Bronx from this death sentence here. So I'll, I'll certainly have you back with your permission. Oh, absolutely. I really appreciate that, Mike. I really do. Thank you so much. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about uh, this dog on death row in Victoria. His name is Bronx the Dog and City of Victoria moving forward with an application to put the dog down. You heard my conversation there with Ken Griffiths, the owner. He uh, is a dog behaviorist who has won the right in court to visit the dog and assess the dog in court. That's in uh, the animal shelter. Uh, that's going to happen on Thursday. Rebecca Bretter is an animal rights lawyer at Bretter Law, and I'm pleased to welcome her back. Rebecca, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is a fascinating case. Like, what is the? It, it sounds like. Do you think this dog should be saved? I mean, this is a dog that it appears killed another dog and bit two people. I mean, isn't that a pretty much usually a death sentence for a dog at that point? Oh, no, not necessarily. It shouldn't be anyway. I mean, on the face of it, I could see how, how it could appear that way. But I know, I mean, I got involved when Lisa Warden, who's an incredibly caring person, was, uh, she works at, or volunteers at, um, or works, sorry, at a soup kitchen. And uh, this man was often there with Bronx, the dog, and that man, Richard Benora, was the original dog guardian. Right. And he got into trouble, and, and so Lisa was trying to do everything she possibly can to save this dog, and she started reaching out to people, including Ken, who you just had on, and, and to myself um, for, for some advice and some help. And so, um, so Richard, just this, this case really involves also, it, it's about access to justice. This is a man who's on disability. He has uh, really a, a lot of physical... physical um, limitations. I mean, he doesn't have thumbs. And, and the problem was with his ability to control his dog. So yeah, so a, a lot of these, uh, these incidents, they happened because the original dog guardian was unable to manage his dog. But this right. isn't a dog that's running out and killing people. And like you heard from Ken, he believes that he could, 
he could save him, he could train him, yeah. and he could teach him the proper ways. And really, ultimately, what the court cares about in these cases, and what they'll care about in this particular case, is whether Bronx poses an unacceptable risk to the public. So just because a dog did something in the past, even killed another dog, you have to look at the surrounding circumstances. Like what Ken said, right? This isn't a dog who mauled another dog. It was one bite, and yes, of course it's unfortunate, and it was traumatic for the, for the dog and the other guardian who lost their dog. This isn't a crazy dog that's like aggressive and out there killing people and killing dogs. What ultimately matters is, like I said, whether the dog poses an unacceptable risk to the public. And to, to figure that out right. and to show that to a court, you have to have two things. One is an assessment of the dog, and two, you have to have a management plan in place. So that you could tell the judge, listen, like this is we did our assessment. This is what our assessment tells us. Okay. But more importantly, we're able to manage the dog. And these are the steps that we're going to do to manage the dog safely. Okay, let's squeeze a phone call in here and see what people think. Mimi in Langley. Go ahead, Mimi. I was bitten by my next door neighbor's dog totally, totally unprovoked about 15 years ago. Not only did I suffer physically, but it's a mental anguish afterwards. I'm now terrified of dogs. Whether or not that dog could have been rehabilitated, I don't know enough about that. But I know the effect it had on me. Fifteen years ago, I'm still petrified of going near dogs, and I love animals. So again, it's not only the physical, but it was the mental anguish for myself. And I'm just thinking of, you know, little kids, what if it would have been, you know, uh, you know my child or my grandchild, and, and, and you know, what long-term psychological and physical effects could it have had on there? And I love animals, but yeah. other things spoken, we really have to consider the psychological effects on, Thank- on humans. Thank you, Mimi, for sharing that. And Rebecca, we just have 30 seconds left. What do you say to her? Yeah, I agree. I'm sorry that she feels like that. And I agree, we do have to consider both the physical and psychological effect. And that's what a management plan partly does. It ensures that the dog could be managed safely and humanely to ensure the welfare of the dog while also ensuring public safety. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank thank you, Rebecca. I hate to step on you. Out of of time. Rebecca Bretter.